The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. You know, this week, uh, our episode was on William Blake, so you're going to be following William Blake. I hope that's okay. Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. <laughs> At least you're doing it in alphabetical order. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm, that's poet and poetic ambassador Bob Holman, who joins us today for a rollicking conversation about poetry, where it's been, where it is now, and where it's going. Bob started life as the son of the only Jew in Harlan, Kentucky, when he came through the 60s and the Vietnam era, and has lived all the way into whatever today's age will be called the 2020s. Let's hope it ends up with a good title. Maybe it can, if we make it so. And if we listen to the poets, the shock troops that work on the ground, bringing us news, bringing us truth. They are the green shoots that arise even when the mighty oaks are blasted by disease and withering before our eyes. The poets. Always the poets. The first responders to our national and international emergencies. Bob Holman is a poet. That Kentucky boy kept his taste for poetry and his desire to see it thrive and his hunger and curiosity to hear different voices, to be in rooms where poetry was being delivered to audiences, searching for meaning, searching for innocence, searching for experience. He lived an entire life in poetry as a poet, as a reader, as an organizer, as an advocate, as a filmmaker. Well... We'll let him tell you about his roles. You'll hear it all from the living legend, Bob Holman, including the story of two books of poetry just published by Bowery Books, Life Poem and The Unspoken, both by the same poet, written 50 years apart. Well, I should say they were both by Bob Holman, one when he was 21 years old and one when he was in his 70s. Two books by the poet Bob Holman. But is that the same poet? Is that the same person? We will ask Bob himself what he thinks. All that and more on today's History of Literature. Lots to talk about today, so let's get right to it. I'm Jack Wilson, your host, Bob Holman. What a great figure and what a great conversationalist. He's going to be here in a minute. And if this doesn't inspire you to go out and attend a night of reading poetry, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe the cynicism has oozed over you for so long and the shell has grown so hard, you need a little tap. A little tap, tap, tap to break through that armor and check on the state of your mind, your soul, and your heart. Bob makes the case, well, I don't want to spoil the conversation. Let's catch up on some listener feedback, including some Apple podcast reviews that I'd like to pass along. I shared these with Mike Palindrome, our partner in crime, 
And he had a response to one of them that was so very Mike Palindrome. It was the quintessential Mike Palindrome response. I'll pass that along as well. My best fiend. (laughs) Striking once again. Here we go. Subject. Jack makes you want to read and think. Five-star review from Philicides. Jack reminds me why I love to think and to read. He has such palpable affection for his material, and it's contagious. The podcast has given me the energy to start and to finish reading books and stories, and that, I think, is the highest praise a podcast about literature can attain. Wow. Thank you so much, Philicides. You made my week. Here's another Jack Wilson, a podcaster, a friend from DZXY. I will, (laughs) perhaps not his or her real name. I will keep this brief and to the point, says this reviewer. I listen to this podcast nearly every day, and it brings me solace. As a 24-year-old literature fanatic, I find it difficult to find other similarly aged, similarly minded friends with whom I could discuss literature or art in general, but that's a whole different conversation. Jack Wilson's informative podcast provides a voice and a friend that I rarely find outside of the internet. This was from Deegsy. Thank you, Deegsy. Six E's, a couple of X's. Reminds me of a late night email I got from a coworker who had to send a follow up email the next day apologizing that he had fallen asleep on his keyboard. <laughs> his forehead smashed into the letters, sent a nonsensical email to a group. Maybe that happened to DGCXY as well. Then here she woke up and wrote this beautiful review. Many thanks. Speaking of late night emails, I shared an office once with an older guy named Steve who used to drive a cab in New York. A smart guy, tough guy, Irish American, tough guy, and a big drinker. Steve used to get blasted, come back into the office late at night and write emails telling everyone in our group what he really thought about them. So one morning we were all greeted by this man's angry email. You know, you're all hypocrites. You have no soul. I'm working with spineless toadies, that kind of thing. Long, angry rant sent to the whole department. And I'm working away. Steve's not there. His chair is empty, of course. He's hungover, probably hoping he didn't actually do the thing that he vaguely remembered doing. Maybe wondering if he should ever show his face in there again. And my supervisor, our supervisor, mine and Steve's, came in and poked her head in the door. She's being very cautious, you know, like she was afraid Steve might be there. It was just me. Harmless me. She says, Hi, Jack. And I said, Hi. And she said, Um, should I be worried about Steve? (laughs) And I said, I don't know, Beth. What do you think? I mean, he just said he hates us all and hopes we all die. Maybe you should be a little bit concerned, I guess, since you're his boss. I'm not the boss or anything, but what do you think? And she nodded like she was busy taking in new information. Something for her to consider. And finally, she walked away. Yeah. One of your employees just came into the office by himself two o'clock in the morning 
in order to inform the entire office that they are all a bunch of quivering fools who have sold out to the man. I think you could be a little bit worried, Beth. Just a tad, just a touch. Last review. Great show. This is by James from Canada. Excellent. Except for 83, Mike actually says Don Quixote has no feeling. That's right up there with Elliot stating Hamlet is an aesthetic failure. So, Don Quixote. (laughs) For those of you who missed that episode, it's still our most listened to episode, I think. The overrated episode, books you don't have to read. So I thought, you know, before that episode, I thought maybe Finnegan's Wake would be there. One of those books people might worry that you have to read because Joyce was a genius. And Mike and I could alleviate that burden, reduce some guilt, assuage some of those hard feelings, the self-hatred, by saying, you know what, unless you're a Joyce specialist, you can give this one a pass. You can read Ulysses and Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man and Dubliners and turn to other things. Life will still be good. You'll still be intelligent and cultured. You don't have to feel bad. You can read it if you want. I'm not saying you can't, but you don't have to feel bad if you don't. That was the point of the show. And Mike, who had the first pick, came out of the gate swinging. <laughs> he was loaded for bear. His number one pick, Don Quixote. <laughs> I think my response was a shocked gasp. He made the case. He said there was a character who vomited into another character's mouth, and that's when he put it down. That's proven persuasive to some people, but it is proven less persuasive to many, many others. We have been dealing with the fallout ever since, over a hundred episodes later. I still get emails, angry emails about this. I don't think I'm allowed in Spain anymore. There were some indications that my books are banned there. I don't don't know if that's related. So I emailed this review to Mike and said, the ignominy of episode 83 is going to follow us to our grave. You know, like, how about apologizing for this, Mike? You nearly tanked the show. And Mike's response was perfectly Mike. He said, wait, someone compared me to T.S. Eliot? (laughs) He's thrilled. He's absolutely thrilled. No remorse. No nod to his old friend Jack. And all the damage control he's had to do. Just floating above the fray. Sailing away. Living on his... Mike Palindrome Cloud. Incredible. Anyway, if you'd like to help support the show, you can write one of these five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or even just click on the five stars. That's enough. You might think, well, why should I do that? Why should I commit? No reason, really. It just would help others find the show. And as we grow the community and we find other like-minded people, lovers of literature, you will have the satisfaction of being a part of something that still exists, something that sometimes feels a little endangered, which is our ability to connect to one another through literature, connect to one another 
period. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can sign up for our Patreon account at patreon.com slash literature. Like this week's new patrons, David and George. We are so very appreciative of all the patrons who help keep this show up and running. And our sponsors as well. Speaking of which, let's take a quick break and come back with the incredible Bob Holman, who tells us all about what it's like to live a lifetime in poetry. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is poet and poetry advocate Bob Holman in a New Yorker. Hi program. there, Jack. Hi. <laughs> in a, <laughs> I've got a lot Sorry more to, to go interrupt. before we... Something <laughs> I have to interrupt. Uh, in well, a New Yorker please. profile, Henry Louis Gates Jr. wrote that Bob Holman has, quote, done more to bring poetry to cafes and bars than anyone since Ferlinghetti. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, of course, was famous for turning the San Francisco of the 1950s and 60s into a cultural mecca, presiding over a flourishing of poetry and poetry readings. Bob Holman performed a similar feat in New York City, galvanizing the literary and cultural scene with spoken word performances and poetry slams. He further democratized poetry through award-winning PBS documentaries, and he is himself the author of 17 published works and has given thousands of rollicking live performances. Bob Holman, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Wow. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Um, the history of literature has got to, of course, include the future, right, Jack? That's right. And that's where I want to go when we get to the end, because I think you are in a, a very uh, special position to be able to answer some of the questions where we talk about where literature has been and where it's headed. But let's save that. And let's go back to uh, your childhood. So you grew up in uh, what you've called as the son of the only Jew in Harlan, Kentucky. What was your childhood like? Well, there was there was my father, Benjamin Franklin Geller. Mm -hmm. um, his his brother was Abraham Lincoln Geller, mm. um, and and <laughs> Papa Saul and uh, and and Bubby Sophia did come from Ukraine, and landed in in Harlan, Kentucky, where uh, Papa started selling. 
pots and pans door to door wow. uh, with a, with a price tag on them because he didn't speak English yet. Wow. And uh, my grandmother never learned how to read English, and they spoke Yiddish together. My mm-hmm. first, uh, my, my 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 first connection with with Yiddish and with an endangered language, um, and my mother was the uh, daughter of coal miners in Harlan, Kentucky, right. um, which is a, a coal mining center in this in this country, and has been through a lot of union struggles. Um, I since my, my my father exited from the scene when I was when I was young, two and a half. I do have some wonderful memories of him. Hmm. Um, my mother remarried when I was in kindergarten. And, uh, so I was raised by a stepfather. He, uh, my, I was adopted by him. So my name is now whole man rather than Geller. Mm-hmm. And, um, my upbringing was really split between, uh, the, uh, the Jewish world of the South and the Midwest, which then was much more, uh, prevalent in the, in the smaller towns. They managed to make a minion getting together the, uh, the dozen, dozen men to, uh, to have a service um, by going to all the, the towns around Harlem, Cumberland and Pineville, mm. where my brother was born. It was, a, it was a wonderful sort of mongrel upbringing, and, I, and I, all, I guess I got my feeling for diversity there. And it's not easy to get a feeling of diversity in, in Harlem or in Cincinnati, Ohio, where we moved when my mom remarried. Because uh, it was so segregated in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, I once went on tour with Abio Dunoyuwole of The Last Poets, and we were thrilled to find that we both lived in Cincinnati in the 50s, and we started talking about Cincinnati to each other. The only problem was we didn't know the streets that each other were talking about. Oh. That's how segregated the city was at that point. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the country, and then I came to... Uh, New York because I fell in love with poetry, went to Columbia because that seemed to be the center of the beat scene. And that's where I found myself when I got here, where I still am. So did you know you were headed for a life in poetry from an early age? When did the poetry bug bite you? Well, I think literature bit me when my mother taught me to read. Mm. Uh, I think that we should spend more time on that miracle because what we're doing is transitioning from the old to the written tradition. Mm-hmm. And of course, poetry existed orally for tens of thousands of years before writing was invented. We just didn't need it. What would we do with it? As long as we could have our wonderful stories and songs and and kinship patterns, knew who was who, we didn't need any writing. The, the people were the books. But then when we learned how to, to write, the voice of the poet was able to spread beyond the physical presence of the poet. And that was a good thing. The only thing is we kind of forgot about the joys of that orality and the, and, 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 and the, and the, the positivity of it. Why uh, is it that kids can learn to read, learn, I mean, can learn a language without reading? Mm. And the answer is that when your ears are allowed to be naturally tuned up, you can speak a language as quickly as people can speak to you. It's when we learn how to learn verbs, nouns, adjectives, declensions, possessives, that's when we start tripping over our own tongues. But text 
give us a lot of things. Let's, but let's remember what a reality is. Learning how to read is a miracle, Jack. And my mother was really great at it. She was a kindergarten teacher. Oh, I mean, you know, that's right. a special breed. Yep. That was when I started to do it. But it was in third grade where I wrote my first poem. I'd been sick and uh, they had done poetry while I was out of school. So when I came back, all the kids' poems were up on a bulletin board and they were, excuse me, but they were terrible. You know, they were really right. not very. So I sat down and wrote my first poem. It was called George Washington Followed Indian Trails about how the, our, our, the father of <laughs> right. our country actually was. I was, listen, I was politically correct at yeah, nine was, years <laughs> old and in Cincinnati, Ohio. What can I tell you? You know, I took it up to the teacher and she said to me, there's a lot of stories of, 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 of poets to be who do this. And um, mine was a good one where the teacher said, where did you copy this from? Oh, and I said, yep. copy? I wrote it myself. And she said, wow, you're terrific. Usually what happens is the teacher says, you couldn't have written this yourself. And it starts a different path. Yeah. But Miss Klein at Kilgore Elementary you know, said the right magic words. And from then on, I thought it was a poet, just like she said. Encourage you. So I think there's one kind of paradigm where a poet is maybe a, a, a young person who's um, going through some trouble or, or trying to find their way. And then one day they open a book, they read a poem, they fall in love with it, and then they decide that that's what they want to do. They want to go off and sit in, in cafes and write poems. It sounds like for you, the the better way of thinking of this is you sort of viewed poetry as an essential part of life. And it was broader than just discovering one particular poem or one particular poet, but that you were kind of viewing poetry as something that you wanted to incorporate into your life on a, a in a bigger way. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think there's as much a division as, as, you know, as, as, as you put forward there, Jack, because yeah. You know, it was, you know, as kids, I think all of us are in trouble in some way or other. Mm -hmm. And that when you learn to read and create that world inside yourself, it's a place you can go to that's uh, just yours. And, you know, I think it's true that when, you know, when 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 people learn to write when they're in jail, you know, mm -hmm. that uh it's a, it's a, it's a different kind of escape than it was for a little nine year old in, yeah. in Cincinnati, you know, but it's still a place that you go to. And while I uh, can't name the poets that really turned me on, I can talk about different poems, et cetera, that came on later in high school in those days. Well, Dr. Seuss was really important when I was waiting in the doctor's waiting room, right, you sure. know, I discovered that there were actually poems in there. Um, but, uh, you know, like many poets, some gateway poets are E. Cummings, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know, is William Blake a, a gateway poet? He certainly sure, is a poet, so. a mind-blowing poet that when people pick him up, they, you know, they sort of fall into, in, into his words. You yeah. Know? Did you know right away that you wanted uh, performing poetry to be part of your poetic career or did you start out just putting words on the page and thinking that that's what poets did both <laughs> I mean, uh -huh. i'm going to give you this a lot because that's what gregory <laughs> corso told me was the poet's choice whenever they say do you want this one or that one always say i'll take both of them uh you know but uh 
you know, I knew that a poem was something that was written in a book. Right. But I also knew that the way that my I am organically is has this win in front of an audience to be a performative. I have no, um, I, I get a little stage fright, but I have no inhibitions mm. from talking in an audience the same way that I talk to, I'm talking to you right now. Right. You know, it's um, so, so it was, it, it was not that I thought, Oh, I'll perform this. It was more like, Oh, I'm going to just do it my way. You know, when I was going same third grade, there was a big year for me. Um, kids warned me that you had to do book reports in third grade book reports where you stand in front of the class yeah. and talk about a book you've read. How horrible, how horrible. I thought, am I the only, am I such a nutcase that I think what could be better than standing in front of the <laughs> class and talking about a book you've read? Oh, it's heaven. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That, you know, I was, I felt that now, uh, you know, that uh, maybe that does come through the genes from the, from the, the, you know, later on, I will learn about Mayakovsky and the Russian futurists and yeah. what was going on with the, with that kind of speech in Russia when my, when my grandparents left. And of course I did come into contact with the Appalachian um, singers and, and storytellers. And my aunt was a, a great, Charlotte Nolan was an incredible storyteller in Harlan, Kentucky. You know, so uh, so I did have this stuff going on in my in my mongrel American uh, genes. Yeah, right. And then you were writing. So Bowery Books has just released two books of yours, and they're written fifty years apart, which I think is pretty unusual in the publishing world. <laughs> so let's let's start with the earlier written one, Life Poem, which is a book length poem that you wrote at age twenty one. So what were you writing about at age? Was this when you were at Columbia or was this before? Yes, I was at Columbia at this okay. time. I had just I finished my junior year. I'd seen in the, in the student newspaper, the Columbia Spectator, a little classified ad that said uh, artists wanted. Boy, I'll tell you, I'd never seen anything that said that. Uh, yeah. So I, I, what it was was artists wanted for a self-structuring community in the Berkshires. Oh. I said, hey, I'm an artist. I, that yeah. sounds cool to me. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds cool so to I me applied. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got accepted. And uh, so I was off to the Berkshires to Cummington Community of the Arts. Um, mm. Previously, it had been a school of the arts, but uh, where you had teachers and students. Now it was a self-structuring community where everybody was a teacher and everybody was a student. I think that's the definition of the 60s. Yeah. And there I was in the dormitory in the old barn and uh, thinking, well, if I'm a poet, I better write a book. And I was, uh, of course, from, I loved the cantos and I loved uh, yeah. Patterson. And uh, so I was ready and started my book length poem. And as it starts, um, I, I'm desperate now. I write down everything that comes into my head. That's the opening line of Life Poem, and that's pretty much what it is. I just wrote down whatever came into my head, yeah. did some editing, and uh, that was, uh, you know, the 100-page book. Right. And what— My there, life is the poem. Your life up up to the age of 21. Well, that's a, that was an old man at 21. <laughs> so what's the experience like for you— to revisit those early poems, do you admire the energy or feel nostalgia for who you were, or are you rolling your eyes or wish you could give some advice to that young man? Or what's the 
What's what's it what's it like to be where you are in life now, taking a look at those poems from fifty years ago? Jack, you're very good. You know, I um I'll have to take the poet's choice again. Yeah, all yeah, of the above. All of them. You know, um <laughs> because uh, first off, I was uh, it's awkward and a little embarrassing. Yeah, you know, because um, you're young. You're so yeah. young, and you. I know. There's a lot of stuff young in and unpolished. here that makes me make cringe. But you know, but young and unpolished is not necessarily bad. It's right. just young and unpolished. And yeah. uh, you're absolutely right about the energy. The energy that this guy has, yeah. and then uh, throws around, and with his rollicking sense of life is yeah. just, you know, uh, it, 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 it's. it's communicative spontaneity you know um, yeah. and uh I, what what has kind of surprised me is that people really like it you know, right. i've been right. selling as many of them <laughs> as i am of the new phones right it's not like a historical artifact people like hearing it when i performed uh parts of the book at the that's the big book launch at uh, howell gallery showed a film by Chris Horton, who was the uh, sort of the big daddy of Cummington Community of the Arts. And he, uh, it was one of those 60s experimental films with all the overlaps and the color shifts and the changes, sort of Jonas Mika's Stan Brackage, you know, kind of work. And I read the poems in front of it. And it just, it, it, it is transportative to a different time. And for me to be, a different age and to mm. hear that voice come through this old codger at this point is uh you know you you feel that that disparity and also you can pick up some of the that i'm the same person you know yeah. sometimes it sounds like i am the same person which right i guess i am are there any things yeah. in particular where you notice themes that you think boy i've been i've been writing about that for my whole life well, there's always love, yeah. you know, yeah. but there's also politics, you know, Vietnam is in here a bunch, right. Right. you know, and, uh, you know, friends and relations sort of is what uh, led to the praise poems, which is a major section in the unspoken, my other book. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, I no longer, I, I, I now use capital letters. That's a, that's a shift. And, uh, there's a, a the the innocent uh, lover, uh, the romantic fool that yeah, uh, yeah. I was at 21 has has kind of shifted with you know my my wife died and, right. and uh, that's all over the unspoken. So you know there's there's changes, but but that that kind of crazy energy during the the reading I, I mentioned, I, I read a poem from the new book called Performance Poem where I literally ran through the room, still able to do that at this age, ran out the door. I had a, uh, a, 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 a wireless mic, so I was able to go out the door and down to the corner, still reading to the people in the room. I said, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And only the poem existed. <laughs> right. Well, that, you know, there was, uh, I did hear a story about Philip Roth when he was getting older, and he used to sit down and write, and he said that he would say to himself, you're 21, you're 21, you can write whatever you want. And he he mm. kind of needed that to to strip away all of the, I think, caution and, right. um, you know, that a lot of times what comes with wisdom is is sort of a, 
uh, a dulling of the creative spirit in a way because you've seen so many mistakes that have been made or you've seen so many missteps and and there's something about that 21 year old feeling that's yeah. seems very liberated I, I i really agree with you and with 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 philip that's exactly it you have to put all that stuff aside because you know when you are you know the older you get the more you can see it from the other side Mm. And uh, and when you get that kind of, I mean, you can write about that, but only so much. Because yeah. really, what you want to do is see it fresh. You know, Zen mind, beginner's mind. Yeah. You know, and uh, so, it, it, this is a good kick in the pants for me to uh, to get back to where I once belonged. You know? So I've been to a lot of poetry readings uh, in my day. I've never seen the poet take off running through the through the space. Um, and I'm, I'm interested your, the, the readings that I, you attended and participated in, and I think helped to organize just sound like so much fun. When did this begin? Was this after you came back from the artist retreat and were you, did you jump into the New York scene? Was there already a scene there or did it have to be created? What was going on? at that Always, point? always, always a scene in New York. And when I came back from, uh, from Cummington, there was uh, Kenneth Koch, uh-huh. my teacher at Columbia, who was just the greatest inspiration. Another Jew from Cincinnati. Um, Koch was a, is you know part of the New York School with Frank O'Hara and yep. John Ashbery, you know, and James Schuyler, Barbara Guest. So he just you know the 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 humor that he had in his poems and their you know, absolute vivacity was, you know, just just completely inspiring. At the same time, I saw a little little sign up at the, in the student union that there was going to be a poetry reading at a pizza joint. And I went there and I discovered the the disaffected poets, the New York city undergrounds underground and ran into Don Lev there, who also was like a, a, a spiritual father to me. Because he was a guy who was running these readings all around town, and he's, he, you can see him in Putney Swope, the movie. He's the poet who runs into Fidel Castro. There. Oh yeah, so and uh, this was all over New York City, or was it in the Village? Or? Yeah, it was all over New all York over. City. Right. And you had to find it. And yeah. what I did later in the seventies was I started with with some friends, Sarah Miles, Susie Timmons, uh, the New York City Poetry Calendar. That was the the, the push I felt to. To try to, because uh, there was, there's, there was then, there still is very little visibility for poetry readings. Right. So we decided to get all the poetry readings in town and put them uh, onto the, the same piece of paper. There, so they're all the poets yeah. on the same page, whether they were uptown at the 92nd Street Y or whether they're downtown at the New Yorkian. You know, so that 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 community of poets, if there is such a thing, and of course. There's a way in which poets are the most cantankerous of all the artists um, <laughs> is something that's always pulled me, you know, that yeah. there, that this, you know, that the individual voices be heard and that the voice of the poet be heard as well. Right. Yeah. So what did that so calendar I didn't really start running? I, I was sorry to interrupt. What was that calendar? Was it, are we talking about poetry readings, you know, a couple a week or were there things going on every day or how, how there were, was the there scene? were in New York city at that point, which is 1977 now where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, there were multiple readings every day. Wow. And I'd say probably about, you know, a couple of hundred readings uh, a month. Wow. Yeah. And 
the thing is, the way we, that we collected the information, this was before the internet, guys, yeah, right. uh, was to, you know, call up the organizer and have them say, oops, I haven't really finished it yet. Let me call you right back. And then wait till you got, yeah. they were pushed by the calendar to get their reading list together <laughs> and then uh, get that off to the print center where Bob Hirschon and Frank Murphy printed up the calendar for free. Yeah. It was, uh, it, and then we distributed it with a group of poets called the city geese who just took it from poetry place to poetry place. And of course it was free. That's the way things were. And these might be yeah. in bookstores, cafes, restaurants exactly everywhere. all the readings yeah. yes bookstore you you named it yes, yeah that's exactly where they were and that lasted for you know until really the internet sort of slowed it down and and but there's nothing that really takes its place you know i, I think it's something that was really one of the last gasps of uh of, of text and orality before digital came in and changed wait everything. when you say the internet slowed it down do you mean the 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 business of putting together the calendar, or do you mean the poetry readings themselves? Neither. Uh, now, that is a poet's choice for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it means that because the information moves so fast on the Internet that the the, the idea of a, of, of a print or even a, uh, a compendium on the, uh, on, the, on the Internet sort of didn't seem as useful because people would find what niche they were in, what group they were with, and they just wanted to find out about that. And through those means, they'd find about other readings, etc. You know, Jackie right. Sheeler, a poet who, who died just a couple of years ago, tried to make an online version of it. And Poets and Writers has something similar. Mason Granger, who's been running the Bowery Poetry Club, has his slam find for uh, finding slams. But uh, that's across the country and across the world, though, just for slams. Um, so it's really a different means of transferring information. Now, mm -hmm. There are as, as many, I'm sure, there are as many poetry readings going on now as there were then. Oh, okay. Uh, so I don't know if there are more. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been to so many. What do you think makes an effective poetry performance, and how might that differ from... Uh, you know, a successful poem that we might read on the page? What elements go into making it successful live? Okay, well, you know, there's a... Um, first off, I'm not a believer that there is such a thing as a performance poem, mm, okay. uh, even though I did write one and perform it, um, <laughs> which you have to do, because if you're the poet, you always have to do the opposite of what you say it is. Right. That's the only way to include everything. So... Uh, um, to me, and I, this is my, the, the class I, I teach at, at colleges is uh, called uh, Exploding Text. Any text can be a basis for performance. And the further it, quote, seems from, uh, from performance, the, 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 the more you can dig into it and find out how you can collaborate with, um, with other arts, with, with dance and music and film, painting to create something with that poem that will be a performance. But if we're talking about, and, and if you can't hear that poem, it usually helps if you've heard the poet. I wish we could hear William Blake. Mm. Um, if you've heard the poet, and then you read any of that poet's poems, yeah. you can put in that poet's voice and right. hear it. Right. It's such a great treat. That's part of the wonders of reading again. Yeah. You know, 
But if you're at a reading, you first, to me, if, 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 if William Carlos Williams were reading, giving a poetry reading, or, or T.S. Eliot, I'd go to that poetry reading just to hear this great writer. Yeah. You know, they don't, you don't have to perform, you know, right. it's just that with performance, you, you take full advantage of the, the whole history of poetry. Like you talk about the history of literature. Well, the history of literature begins within orality before there is right. writing. You know, yeah. I don't know if you want, with me, you're kind of digging back into that. So we're, we're creating a, the, the future by visiting the past here. Um, so when a, when a person acknowledges the, when a poet acknowledges the audience and shapes the reading to the ear, the collective ear that's sitting there in, in front of her, then you have the magic of the now happening with that poem, the same way it happened for Homer and the same way it happened for the griots of West Africa happens now with them. It's why those societies still live in such a, uh, in, in such an incredible uh, oral universe. Mm. So, you know, the, the, and, and, but there's, it's never to me something that's, that's, pushed or you know you can Allen Ginsberg was crucial to me in learning how you can free yourself on stage you know mm-hmm. that man he was just liberation itself up on on stage um but so was Amiri Baraka you know yeah. and uh and Jane Cortez showed me that your voice could drill the poem into the air without you moving it one step you know, the irony could drip from language. It was just incredible. So, you know, I've had great, there's, there's, there's always some great, great performers around and, uh, but it needn't be something that calls attention to itself. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I love that answer because the way I framed the question was really, uh, asking about kind of things that the poets could do. And one of my follow-up questions is going to be, we see so many, poets who are on stage who have different styles and they all seem like they're effective in their own way but what you started with really resonated with me that it it's it's about something deep within us as an audience as well and the the experience of being in the room with the person who's speaking it it's it's in our dna to be listeners as you know and sort of active participants and i'm sure that that must be uh, an equal part of the success of a poetry reading, that electricity that comes from a really good interaction between the poet and his or her audience. Exactly. And even more so now, Jack, because we're so unused to that yeah. kind right. of, 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 of art, you know, that direct contact with language that hasn't gone through the, uh, the, the, the screenplay rewrite committeeization, you know, that has not been, you know, massaged into what, you know, into audience approvals. That's the direct voice of the poet with all the language magic you can have. Mm. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's, it's, it's, it's still a new experience. And when, spoken word was rediscovered in the, in the, you know, around 1990 at the New Eureka Poets Cafe and at the, the Green Mill in Chicago and other places around the country. 
um, then that was that was the discovery when kids came in, young folks came in and heard that um, that what they had fallen in love with with hip hop had its origins, its origins in uh, in poetry. In fact, hip hop is poetry, and when that collectivized, it was uh, really uh, the, the juggernaut that's led, I think, to the fact that you know poetry is much is much more wide open now than ever before hearing voices you know it's so it's something when the you know when we're sliding into fascism at the top of the country that the voice of the poet down here on ground level mm-hmm. is pushing us all towards uh, towards the possibilities that this country you know really has or could have Hmm. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with some questions about Bob Holman's other latest book, this one written 50 years after the first. Okay, so the second book recently published is called The Unspoken, which has kind of a uh, I think there's a, a bit of a an inside joke, I would call it, or a, a, a wink on the on the cover here. The words are actually Bob Holman and the spoken word movement, and Bob Holman and word movement are crossed off, leaving just the unspoken. So I, I'm getting the sense that you were maybe uh, expecting readers, or maybe your publisher had asked for you to write a book about Bob Holman and the spoken word movement. That was something you were famous for, and instead. You you have the kind of the opposite of this, which is the unspoken. So tell us about the title and how you uh, came to write this book. Uh, you nailed it pretty good there. You know, you forgot to mention that the spoken, which was what was left, has got the 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 the, the un yeah. un <laughs> right. in red with a carrot. There. You're right, right. I mean, so much detail. <laughs> Who could? And then at the bottom, it says, doesn't say written by or by. It says as non-oralized by <laughs> Bob Holman. I mean, it's, right. I don't know how big a wink you can make, but boy, this is one that looks like a jawbreaker wink, you know? Um, right. So, uh, yeah, this is, you know, what's this, what's a, what's a guy like me? You know, that's it. That's my, you know, that's my moniker. I love Bob Holman's spoken word. Like, as if that's a separation from poetry, you know, or has to live in its own little, uh, you know, subset over there. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, I, th- I think just getting a book called The Unspoken is, you know, because that's what a poem, poetry book is to me. You know, it's yeah. unspoken. It's going to get spoken. You're going to speak it while you read it, you know. Um, and the poet, if you hear the poet read them, then it'll get spoken. Or if somebody else wants to perform it, it'll be spoken. But uh, when it's in the book, it, it's not dormant it simply is unspoken and uh i like this it's a great big catalog kind of a right book it is can, yeah uh, that you can flip through and see the titles which are in really big bold letters and pick out any poem you want to read at the moment it's i think it'll make great bathroom reading yeah you know? um and there's also a poem on the cover because you got to get as many poems <laughs> yes. in the book as you can. You know, right. the cover has a guy with a dunce cap over his face. Yeah. So he's looking into, you know, his, they own, his own dunce cap, and the poem goes, Who knows? Who cares? Why bother? How come? What possible difference could it make? 
<laughs> or what possible difference could it make? I guess you could also read it. But, uh, you know, and the thing is, it's about, well, if what difference does it make if the unspoken just stays unspoken? Well, you know, if you take off your dunce cap and speak it, then maybe we'll have the change that we're all talking about going. So that's what poetry does. Right. I'm going to give you another choice here. I'm guessing you're going to choose both. But let me, <laughs> let me, let me ask it anyway. So... Would you say that this is sort of a uh, uh, a Bob Holman, the wiser poet, recording his his uh, thoughts of the world at this stage in his life, or would you say this is they finally managed to get the the dynamo Bob Holman and put his poetry between two covers? Wow, you're really good. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I, 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 it's not the, 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 the that I think it has wisdom. I think that it shows variety of experience. Though, mm. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, it's got a, a, you know poems about uh, you know. Well, the other one was always falling in love with my muse in life poem. In uh, the unspoken, I've got uh, uh, you know three kids and uh, and grandkids and yeah. and my wife Elizabeth Murray for many years and no longer here and I've been through the experiences of working as a poetry administrator and in films and my work with endangered languages and then all the people that I know or don't know that I write these praise poems about because of my years of study with Papa Suso the griot from West uh, Africa from Gambia who taught me how to, you know, how to to use the West African idiom for creating these praise poems. Mm. So, you know, that's, you know, uh, my experiences in life poem are very much singular, me looking at things and imagining these places. I never really yeah. even thought of that, but I know there's a section about the Igbos, a tribe from Nigeria. There's a section of, of, of uh, you know, a guy from uh, Uruguay in there and different places that I've never been. Well, now I've pretty much been there. And uh, so the poems come in a different way. They're not the, the sparkling Lucy in the sky with diamonds kind of uh, eruptions that every, every look was in, in life poem. Now there's places I've written, you know, I've, I've trekked to um, Goulburn Island off of Australia to be with uh, the Aboriginal people and their, you know, of an island of 400 people that speaks 10 different languages, you know. So, um, right. you know, it's... And was it poetry that took you to these places? Was it part of your career or was were these vacations you took or... Yeah, they were all, you know, it's all poetry. I don't know the poets yeah. get vacations. Yeah, right. Because that's a lot of times when we get to write. I was just in Rapa Nui, Easter Island, um, working on a film and uh, the, the film is of my poems, and my poems follow in the tradition of Pablo Neruda, uh-huh. who uh, who also went to Rapa Nui and, and wrote La Rosa Separada, the the, the, the solitary rose. Um, and uh, in in uh, in in Australia, I was there with David Grubin, the filmmaker, making making Language Matters, a film about endangered languages. Mm. That, Moved from from Australia and Charlie Mangolda, who's the the uh, last speaker of Amardak, his language, um, to Wales, which is the only uh, country where a language 
has gone off the endangered list, Welsh, such an incredible language, great poetry, and uh, ending up in Hawaii, where there's a group of people who are really trying to revive the Hawaiian language. Wow. So that was what, that was a PBS show, and you can find it around some places. Yeah. Um, but it goes, you know, for me, that was all about poetry, and I meet the poets in the different places and, and even read a poem in Welsh during it. Ah. Um, so it's uh, to me, these languages are what keep alive the traditions of poetry that are part of the cultures that are so individuated, such, you know, the, the, we talk a lot about the ecology of the planet, but what about the ec- ecology of languages that are going mm, on? You know, the right. ec- ecology of people, of humans, you know, each of each race, each language is, has a different consciousness. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, not easy to keep uh, these smaller languages going, but if the people want it, and there's plenty of cases now where people are bringing back languages that haven't been spoken for over a hundred years. So anyway, it's part of our lives. I think we can do that in this way. I'm rippling around and you and I are, 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 are playing ping pong with the words and William Blake is the net, you know, it's, uh, you know, this is, uh, this, this is what it's all about, you know, where poetry lives. So what would the 21-year-old author of Life Poem have thought about the unspoken? Ha! That's the first time anybody's asked me that. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, I think of, uh, you know, I, I, I would say when I tell people I, I teach at Columbia, I say, I have become the guy I used to laugh at. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think... You know, the, the thing is, I'd like to think of myself as a, as um, Michael Wood or an Angus Fletcher or a Howard Schless, uh, some of the po- some of the teachers, that, and a, or a Kenneth Koch. Whoa, yeah. Oh, I think, you know, <laughs> they're who I truly did love. Yeah. But, you know, when you're young, when you're, you know, a junior, you're, you think of all the professors, ah, they're just old foggies. Oh, you know, they right. don't know nothing. Yeah. And so I'd like, to, you know, I do, you know, Keep, you know, I'm at, at the Bowery Poetry Club here. I'm, and, you know, always in touch with younger poets. And, you know, I don't know that there's so much I have to say to them in my poetry. They can go read the poems if they want. But I hear them and I hang out and I get to know them. So there are these generations that uh, have these separations. And, you know, I was such a, I, you know, like I say, I knew everything when I was 21. It's a... Yeah. Um, amazing that I could uh, know anything more by the time I'm I'm in my 70s. But do you think, I mean, there's there's this thing, whenever I go to a funeral of, of somebody who lived to be 98 years old and died in their sleep and had good health throughout, and, and someone makes the comment, you know, if any of us could, could take that deal right now, we would take it. And do you think the 21-year-old author would look at the unspoken and say, if I have a life to live, and I'm going to be in my 70s someday, I'll take what this guy has. Boy, you, you know, you're not known for being a tough questioner, but you're being tough on me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. I, you yeah. know, if I honestly had to say, I think that if this, you know, little punk kid from, uh, from Kentucky who went to an old country high school in Ohio and, made his way to New York that he was still around, which I did not anticipate 
at all that I, you know, would make it to this age. A lot of my dear pals have aren't here anymore. Um, yeah, I think that it would be okay with him. You yeah, know, that, yeah. Uh, that there's these books and you know the places, the Bowery Poetry Club that I started in the New York and that I helped revive and and the Poetry Project at St. Mark's and all these places. How you know that I work with because that's just part of how I see my job, you know, I worked for the CETA artist project. So right. they also helped to label me a, a poet way back in the day. So, uh, you know, it's a good, I, I appreciate you bringing that up actually, because yeah. that gives me that, you know, it's hard for poets to find their, uh, you know, their, their ways of fulfillment. I know. Uh, and it, I get so outside of it. I get emails like that from a lot of my listeners are, uh, young people and young writers, young poets. And I think a lot of them are on that verge where they'll, they'll say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm the only thing I'm interested in or my primary interested interest right now is literature or poetry, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to hang on to that. I, I'm worried that I will need to set that aside in order to earn a living or um, you know, I have to major in something else or that kind of thing. I think there is that sort of fear that a lot of young people who are uh, poets or, or writers have mm -hmm. is yeah. how do I, how do I make this my life? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, I hate to say it's a lot different now than it was back when I was writing life poem. Um, and, you know, at that point, all it took was a little, little push in this direction and all of a sudden you were writing a book and mm -hmm. while it didn't get published then it did lead to something else it led to something else and the, the the cadre of people that you met you know where it's people that you would grow up with and the uh, mfa programs were not quite the ponzi programs that they are right mm -hmm. now ponzi schemes um but uh you know art calls you and uh, if you need it it's always there it's that the human part of being human and it's what we do ourselves when we're left to ourselves yeah look at those heads in rapa nui you know what did they do amazing while wow, they destroyed their planet of course but it's a different story right maybe it's the same story but um so i can only say to those people you know uh to the young artists you know come to new york yeah right. <laughs> don't do that anymore you don't have to <laughs> um, i did that for for a generation but it certainly seems now that that's one of the great things about art is that it is finding its locale oh. the same way that food is yeah you know yeah and while i don't want to turn you off from coming to new york and certainly visiting bowery poetry while you're here um i think that we're seeing now the re a return to to roots and and to cities and that's all for the good because those experiences are are crucial to uh to the to a healthy poetics for the country right um but it, I, there's nothing, you know, the, the struggles that we're in now are different from the struggles we had then. It was very clear about Vietnam, you know, mm. although I'd say it's very clear with, uh, with, with, with the federal government here and, what, and all right. government, what direction we have to go in. But uh, so maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe it isn't so different, but it certainly feels like the trauma is closer right now. Right. As we've as we've identified and radicalized ourselves with uh, with um, Me Too and Black Lives Matter, just to use shorthand, um, I think that uh, w women and people of, of color are now 
in poetry are, you know, you have voices like you never heard before. And that was part of what the spoken word movement gave to the country. You know, it's a new Eurekan, you could, you know, either you would, that was a time of multi-culti in the universities and either you could go there and study it or come to the new Eurekan on a Friday night and hear it live from the young poets themselves who are living it. Right. So, you know, that, and I think from that has, you know, you can look at that as, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a you know, as a, a spark. And there's or, a kind of a low barrier to entry. It doesn't have to be at a, a place in New York. It could happen all over the country. It could happen in small towns. It could happen wherever someone is willing to organize it and, and put it together. That's exactly what, you know, what, what I did and what so many other people did. You know, so you can, it's, it's easy to get going. And, uh, you know, the national poetry slam has been, uh, you know, imploded. So there's not even a mass, there's now some, some regional poetry slams that are going on, but mainly it's, you start it yourself. And why does it have to be a slam? It can be, but you can have it be whatever, whatever you want it to be. You know, there was a, an encyclopedia show here a few years ago where people were given there was an overall theme and then everybody was given a specific topic to write about. And the poets, you know, had to do that. That was just the thing. And there's the poetry death match, which is kind of a, a, a totally humorous thing. You know, the, the haiku slams. Anyway, hmm. you don't have to do any of that. You can just have your poetry readings and a place where people can get together and commune and discover the, uh, the great joys of uh, the history of poetry and its future, which is you. Hmm. Okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. Hey. Are you ready? Uh, okay. <laughs> this one is open-ended. There's no way you could choose both to this one. Okay. Okay. You are putting together an all-time panel of spoken word poets. You can include any poets you'd like. They can be from any country, any century, any style. Who are the top three poets you would like to have on your list? Well, I put Papa Suso in there ah. because he's, uh, you know, continues the great uh, Jelia tradition of West Africa. And he had the patience to help me learn how to do something on the Cora and to learn the the stylings of uh, Casamance and, uh, and uh, Mali. And uh, so Papa Suso is what every oral poet uh, would be, which is um, the, uh, the, the hinge between all the generations that came to him and you, the person who's sitting there and, and yeah. he says, sing this one back to me right. after, after he's finished, which was the title of my book before these. So Papa Suso has got to be there. And then I'm going to put, uh, because, and he also represents, of course, all the, the griots back to the first griot who traveled with Muhammad, but that's yeah. another story. But uh, then the, the second one I put is going to be Homer. Homer. But I'm going to put Homer, Homer in because um, there's another tradition, the tradition from, uh, from Greece, you know, from the yep. Balkans. And, uh, um, because there are people who feel that Homer was not a person. We, we don't know who yeah. Homer was. Yeah. But we do know that Homer, the reason why these books are so powerful is that Homer didn't write the Iliad and the Odyssey. He or she or they spoke it. Yeah. And then the question comes, who wrote it? And why don't we give them credit 
And then it becomes, well, how did they do that? Excuse me, Mr. Homer, could you slow down? We've just invented writing. I can't keep up with you. How did that, how did all that happen? I want to know. So, but, but there, you know, Homer is, is the Greek word for the master carpenter who put together the four pieces of the cyclos of the wheel of the cycle. So we talk about the Homeric cycle being somebody who puts together the portions of the, of the poetry from all these different locations and then carried them from place to place. Yeah. And if Homer, Homer could have been the name of the job, and it could have been women, it could have been men, we don't know. Right. But anyway, that that Homer representative of the of you know of of the of, of what is carried through the poem itself that we don't know. Yeah. That's the uh, that would be my second choice. Okay. And uh, the third choice for the panel, I guess, would it be? Sappho. I was going to say Sappho. Yeah. Yeah. Because she had music too. I'm going back there. Yeah. Well, that's the, well, you know, but both Homer and Papa Suso also have music. Yeah. You know, and uh, so you got to have that. So Sappho is a good choice. So is Sekou Sanjata, you know, a poet who uh, I worked with on the Mouth Almighty record label along with Bill Adler. And uh, Sekou, you know, to me, he didn't have time to write his books. And so you can't find a book by him. And yet, as far as I know, he was the first poet to get a, a no bit in the New York Times. They couldn't say what books he'd written because he hadn't. But his right. his performances, his albums, one he had with Mouth Almighty and one he had with Ani DeFranco's uh, label, um, were just so powerful. And his his... His his light on the scene was so, you know, illuminating that e- everyone got touched by it, you know. So, and so I have to do a split among the S's: Sappho, Seku, Sundiata. Ah, for the last seat. Beautiful. Well, Bob Holman, I I expect that our conversation has inspired people to go out and attend poetry readings and maybe get on stage themselves, and I expect that that is just fine with you. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. You're welcome, and I hope they go out and buy the books, too, you know. That's part of it. (laughs) I will encourage them all to do so. Thanks, Jack. It's It's been a wonderful interview. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that inspiring? May a million flowers bloom in the meadow, people, which is my metaphor for you and you and you and you and you, all of you beautiful minds. May you go out with the energy of a 21-year-old Bob Holman, author of Life Poem, and the enthusiasm of the Bob Holman today, author of The Unspoken. The innocence and the experience all combined in one extraordinary figure. I hope you yourself can dive into the world with the same gusto, and why not take a chance and do it with poetry, a poetry reading. Who's it going to hurt? What would be the harm? And who might it help? Think about your life, your modern-day life, your troubles, your toils. I'm in the soup just like you. I know what it's like. As the temperature heats up, the water starts to boil, and we're looking desperately for a way to stay afloat and maybe swim to the shore. 
I'm with you. And I'm also an introvert. At least half of me is. I'm a Netflix and chill kind of guy, temperamentally. I'm uh, talking to the microphone by myself here in the studio at four in the morning. I get it. It's easier to be alone sometimes. Easier to find some solace in books. But what about a night out? A night with poets. A night listening. A night experiencing. Those, these readings are everywhere. They're not sold out. Well, they're free most of the time, so sold out isn't the right term. I mean, they're not overly crowded. There's a chair there, an empty chair waiting for you. And there are minds there too, eager souls looking to share something. They might be older than you or younger or bigger or richer or smaller or poorer. They might come from a different country. They might be a different race, a different religion. Their experience might be totally different from yours in some ways and strikingly the same in others. But they are looking for something. They need help. And so, my friends, do you. So do all of us. So pick up that phone, go to that browser, and figure out where the poets are in your village or town or city. Find them. Be with them. Be them. See what happens. See if something happens to you that's never happened before. Be part of the magic, that miracle. Who will it help? It might help you. Let's close with something here, a reading by Sekou Sundiata, one of Bob's three poets for his magical night. I couldn't find Homer. He wasn't on YouTube. I'll keep searching. Just kidding. Sekou Sundiata, the oral poet, the one whose books might not exist because he's a poet of the moment a poet of experience, a deliverer of experiences, a bard who showed up, read his works, spoke them aloud, influenced the audience, and that was all. That was all, and that was enough. This comes from a reading he gave at a festival in 2006, Sekou Sandiata, reading his poem, New American Theater. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. New American Theater. A citizen walks into a citizenship looking for directions as the drama opens in a new American theater with a view from the lower ninth ward that looks out on speed. A word perfect for a future that is always now. A millennium already old and chronic. These are the rules to engage this space. Characters enter and exit at will drawing blood over reality versus faith. The fighting is dark and sustained. When the mood is absorbed, the Republic moves on to standing ovations. A poet addresses the podium, calibrates her papers, and speaks her words into the room where against all gravity, they float. The scale of empire. War, she says, is the basic unit, but what she really means is wars, but it doesn't seem to matter which one, the audience, clears its throat and checks its pockets. Underground ciphers script the streets with graffiti forecasts, prophetic verses on t-shirts and jittery beats that assault and batter the four walls of the common measure when it's either murder or be murdered or be motion and overflow in a narrow leftover space or be not about time or on time but time itself. There is singing coming in from the wings on wings. What is life? Life is what we're thinking about all day. The water is rising. 
The sky over the harbor turns to beauty from time to time, from lower Manhattan to the Verrazano Bridge, and the air in September is brushed lightly with memorials to forgetting. Though a car is torn apart on a busy street far away, another bomber petitions eternity. Special forces with special powers return home. The word on the street says the CIA antenna sits on top of the old Williamsburg bank, calls dropping from cell phones as soon as you get anywhere near, as if jihad is taking calls in the mosque between Nevins and Hoyt. Who said who to who said who to who? Prayer after prayer bears witness by listening for a call back. Peace and whatnot to the indigenous people of the Salvation Army. Amen to the sinners coming to the house of the Lord for the sweet hour of power. Inshallah to the believers handcuffed in front of the halal store. There are books coming out on the subject every day. The latest one says to lose your soul is a special kind of death. It never leaves the body. It takes refuge in the sympathetic nerves, in the gaps between synapse, in the possibility of remembering. Turn a page and there it is. One eye sees, the other eye feels. A knowledge of self and others. A wave of mixed messages. A tap, tap, tapping through the wires. It doesn't come quiet in the morning. It doesn't come storming at night. Increase by decrease by increase by decrease by degrees. It comes flipping and spinning and flipping and spinning, insinuating, my left, your right, my left, your right, my left, your right, my left, your right, left, right, left, right. 